0: This is Steve Stein and you're listening to Inside Asia. This week I'm in Lebanon, a country of six million people precariously situated between arch rivals, Israel to the south and Syria to the north. It's also part of what some say is a re-emergent region of Western Asia. More on that later in the program. First, Lebanon. It sits at the heart of the Mediterranean basin, and that very fact poses both promise and peril promise because of its rich and diverse culture that when combined with expertise in trade and finance could earn for Lebanon its rightful place. Peril because Lebanon is, as it has always been, subjugated by unwanted meddling from foreign interests. Its recent history is pockmarked by the devastating effects of war, sabotage, and assassination. Still there's hope, and that, perhaps more than any other feature, characterizes the people of Lebanon. While the country is relatively new, the story of its people is an ancient one, dating back to the 8th century BC. Just 42 kilometers north of modern-day Beirut, you'll find Byblos, built by the Phoenicians and thought to be one of the oldest cities on Earth. For centuries, the Phoenicians ruled these parts, before yielding some 2,000 years ago to Macedonian and Roman conquerors. The people here have been subject to some form of occupation or outside control ever since, for only a few short years after gaining independence from the French did the country begin to form a sense of itself. Alas, the establishment of Israel in 1948 and the resentment felt by its Arab neighbors put Lebanon on the front lines of virtually every subsequent clash. Most devastating was a countrywide civil war that raged from 1975 to 1989, leaving 150,000 Lebanese dead and 200,000 wounded. Bear witness to the immaculate Yellowstone buildings gracing the capital of Beirut today, and it's hard to believe that just 25 years ago this city was little more than rubble and ruin. The war may have ended, but the devastation has not. Bombings and assassinations continued to plague the country, with the most recent attack occurring just three years ago. We all live with the possibility of assassination at any time, said one longtime resident and part time Canadian. To tell the story of Lebanon through history or politics is a Rubik's Cube endeavor, so muddled are the facts and who says what that I thought it might be best to describe modern-day Lebanon by sitting with someone who's experienced hope and loss in the country firsthand. Rani Shatta is the son of Mohammed Shatta, who served both as Lebanon's ambassador to the U.S. and a former minister of finance. On December 27, 2013, a car bomb went off in downtown Beirut, killing him and seven other members of his entourage. Ronnie learned what happened just 10 minutes after the bomb went off and rushed to the scene and then to the hospital where his father was pronounced dead. When we come back, my conversation with Ronnie Shatta.
1: Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency Created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com. This is Steve Stein, and you're listening to
0: Inside Asia. I'm in Lebanon this week trying to get to the bottom of what makes this place tick. I met Lebanese native Rani Shata on a walking tour of Beirut. I was struck by the way he moved between feelings of love and despair when discussing the place of his upbringing. To meet with him, I ventured to a strip of Beirut, just beyond the trendy Gamezi Strip, and to a neighborhood with a clear view of the snow-capped mountains in the east. We sat in the living area of his humble apartment, and I asked him to talk about Lebanon's prospects some 25 years after the close of the country's civil war.
2: Lebanon has been through a roller coaster of optimism and disappointment, and also uh, peace and war since the civil war ended. um, There there has been short-term economic growth. There's also been long-term economic decay so it's been all over the place and the, the end of the civil war you would think m- means a prolonged period of recovery and reconstruction and all that stuff that you would associate with berlin or perhaps bosnia and other places uh unfortunately lebanon has not had uh
0: three decades of peace and growth what hasn't happened for lebanon that has happened for others why has there not been this period of recovery growth and prosperity Well, if you ask this question to, let's say, 10 Lebanese,
2: you'll have 10 fundamentally different answers. Um, I will do my best to represent one (laughs) and maybe bridge all those answers into one larger one. Uh, Lebanon's, Lebanon's position in this part of the world, I think, is its blessing and its curse. And episodes of power sharing that works. Um, brief periods of, you know, being associated as positive things. People want to come here. They want to visit here. They want to experience what it's like to be here. Uh, it's it's the same as people staying away from here, people associating it with war and, and violence. Um, but definitely, it's geography. The country's geography is fundamental to how Lebanon has not been able to stand on its own two feet since independence.
0: And, and you're referencing
2: it being just north of Israel? Not that particularly, no. It's the Middle East in all of its, all, in all of its 20th century evolution and devolution. Um, it's not just about being north of Israel, No.
0: And and this is like no place I've ever been in the Middle East where extremely liberal, open-minded, uh, multicultural, 18 different religious sects you mentioned uh, the other day when we were walking around the city, um, an extraordinary level of tolerance, which are things that a lot of people maybe who haven't visited this part of the world would know. Uh, um, and, and so it seems to be a draw for a lot of people, a lot of people who are involved in commerce, trade, finance. It seems to be that kind of place. But then also there is this precariousness, this, this feeling of uncertainty that seems to just prevail.
2: In, in the early 1970s, if I'm not mistaken, this was a Time magazine uh, article about Beirut being the thin veneer, having a thin facade of civilization, uh, meaning that it's very easy for this city to give you the impression that things are fine. And I always tell tourists, visiting this country that they may be disappointed that they're coming to a place that's on the whole familiar. They may see snippets of Milan here. They may see things like Nice. Uh, they come here maybe wanting more chaos, more violence to experience what it's like to be in the Middle East and they don't see it. So that's the, I think that's, a, that's the impression one gets by coming here. You'd never know that you're in the middle of a prolonged conflict.
0: So, like the architecture, a bit of the facade, preserving the facade, but scratch it beneath the surface, and you see a whole another Lebanon.
2: Yes, you don't even need to dig that deep, and uh, I think as a as a visitor, there's no reason you should see those things if you're not involved in it. I think you can easily stay away from it, mm-hmm. but um, it's Lebanon is never far away from tragedy.
0: So, so in this realm of of a changeover of governments and the way that policy is developed and the way that they try to appease or accommodate all of these different interest groups, what's what's the trick to making this work? And I want to talk a little bit in a minute about the future of Lebanon, but right now, just in the here and now, what makes the place work?
2: I think you have to be optimistic to call this place working.
0: Well, okay. So let's let's talk about what's not working then. I mean, because I do see we and we discussed this uh, inflation, currency issues. Uh, there there are lots of challenges going on, but yet there's uh, and, and maybe this is me as an as an outsider coming in, and maybe this is exactly what you're pointing to. There's this feeling of of pragmatism you know you know retail outlets are just doing the best they can people are serving the meals in the restaurants you've got this this kind of buzz and this vibe happening throughout the city so there's this feeling that you get that things are moving forward but is that how would you describe that buzz is it more just nervous energy I think if
2: you can compare today to that buzz which was I mean almost euphoria uh, early and mid-2009, um, uh, June of 2006, just before the summer war, um, the immediate immediacy after the civil war ended, those were buzzing years, those were buzzing periods. Now, I think it's completely in reverse. There's a sense of uh, despair and the economy on the brink of collapse once again and uh, regional conflict that spills over into this country. Um, And this is, of course, excluding 1.5 million refugees in this country. So uh, there is, I think, it's yes, there is always, even in the worst times, you will see people going out. You'll see people having a good time and even in the 1980s, perhaps the most dangerous years to visit Lebanon, you'd still see people in the Mediterranean swimming, you'd see nightclubs, you'd see yachts, you'd see people skiing in the mountains as if nothing is happening. That is actually, uh, I think, more of a coping mechanism in dealing with long-term chaos. Um, But no, I don't think, unfortunately, I don't
0: think this, uh, I don't think Lebanon is working well today. Are Lebanon's issues addressable internally, or is it subject to external forces? There are some things that are domestic. There are some, and
2: those things I think uh, are easier to fix once regional issues are solved. But no, there are there are some domestic problems. Yes, I think it's harder to address the the domestic problems. Uh, this could include corruption and clientelism and all that. Um, without addressing the wider problems that are not just impacting Lebanon. I I think it's very difficult, and there are always attempts, always, always good serious attempts at shielding Lebanon from regional chaos and trying to build things here, Um, but they ultimately fail.
0: What are some of the things, I mean, if you were, I know there's a long list here, uh, Ronnie, I, I, I do understand, but, but if there were certain resolutions or certain changes that could take effect uh, in, in the region, what would be the one that could possibly trigger a turnaround for Lebanon?
2: There are a few conflicts that have not been solved. And they have had long-term devastating consequences on Lebanon. Mm. And these are conflicts that some of them are familiar. I mean, the the Middle East peace process hit Lebanon very hard. The lack of peace hit Lebanon very hard. And the PLO was based here. Lebanon paid a heavy price in those years. Uh, And more recently, Iran and Israel vis-à-vis Hezbollah even more recently, the sectarian divide that has become unbearable. Um, these have all had horrible consequences to Lebanon. Mm-hmm. this uh, We're not shielded from those. Now, sometimes we wither the storm, sometimes. And I'll give you an example. The financial crisis of 2008, the world was... In, was hurt by that financial crisis our financial situation is so bad that we didn't understand what all the fuss was about (laughs) never felt it never i mean it was felt but it's been been being felt for a long time right so there's
0: (laughs) there's a silver lining (laughs) if there ever was one we have
2: we've been on the brink of civil strife since the syrian civil war broke out since the syrian revolt and later civil war broke out we've been very fragile. Um, but that is maybe because we know what the consequences of civil war are. We went through it 15 years. Maybe there's a hesitancy to fall back into it. But it doesn't mean things are working. Um, I hope that answers it.
0: Well, it, it's a, it's a, it's on the road to answering it, because I think there are no clear answers, are there? Uh,
2: the, I I think if if Lebanon was in Malta, if we were an island detached west of the Middle East, which is in itself uh, not going to happen, right? You would not be in the Middle East anymore. Mm. Uh, I think we'd have it easier. But any flare-up in the Middle East, Lebanon is impacted. If we're lucky, we're shielded from some of it, but we're definitely impacted from it. By it.
0: If if you if you go back and and look, you just reference the fact that PLO took up residence here for many years during the civil war, which was a source of all kinds of, of destruction and damage and and you know political intrigue, you name it. Um, as a result of that, the, the feeling from the outside is that well, why would Lebanon let that happen again? You know, a, a foreign entity taking over almost um, a, a, a center of control within. A country, and 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 then it raises the question of Hezbollah, the influence and, and the money that comes from Iran and elsewhere. Um, why does the government tolerate this, or aren't they concerned that it sets you up for a repeat of what happened during the civil war?
2: Lebanese sovereignty, the way perhaps you would define it, has has not uh, ha- has not been available since the late 60s early 70s so there has not been a an independent neutral state that is looking out only for this country's interests so any anytime that there is foreign interference whether it's Hezbollah getting money from Iran whether it's any group getting money from abroad um, in Lebanon's history before Hezbollah and after Hezbollah um, uh, there is no independent government that is sovereign, stable, and able to only look at this country. This just hasn't happened. Mm. The Lebanese state broke down decades ago. It has not been functioning properly, even in periods of calm.
0: If Ronnie's assessment of Lebanon's prospects strikes you as particularly dire, it may be due in part to the personal loss he suffered in December 2013. Prior to this, Ronnie had just started leading walking tours of Beirut, sharing with others his knowledge and love of the city, but also pointing out historical landmarks, remnants of Beirut's recent and brutal past. We haven't uh, addressed this yet, but this is very personal for you. Um, In 2013, uh, your father, uh, who was a former minister of finance and a Lebanese ambassador to the US, was killed in a car bomb. could you tell us a little bit about that incident and where you were at the time?
2: I was actually here. I was uh, just east of downtown, and I heard the explosion and took some time to realize what had happened. Uh, not every explosion, not every echo that sounds like an explosion in Beirut is an explosion. So it's just could have been a construction site that had some damage. It could have been anything, gas canister, uh, Lots of echoes in this city So I did not assume right away That it was an assassination or a car bombing Um, I found out minutes later When someone came to me and told me what had happened But uh, no I was I was just Minutes away Mm. And uh, yeah Went to the scene, went to the hospital And all that And months later I decided to For my own Well being And uh, I think not wanting to uh, do what I used to do in a negative way, which was trying to tell Beirut's story full of pain and, and, and resentment, I decided to unplug and detach for a few years. Mm. And I found that to be the right way to, to mourn. I, I wasn't able to mourn here properly. I had to mourn away from here.
0: And then you returned. And you, uh, and you said January 2018, you, you, you started back with some of your Sunday walks around the city and your tours. And again, it was almost, it, it felt to me, Ronnie, just by being in your company and that it was you almost every week rediscovering the Lebanon you grew to know and love and also perhaps uh, not love. I mean, there was this, this mix of feelings that comes through and uh, from, from, from that walk about town. Why do you do it? I did not think I would ever do it again.
2: And when I left, I really thought that this was it, that I would come back years and years later and maybe tell my kids one day, yeah, for, there were a few years, I used to try to tell Beirut's story Mm. to thousands of people. And they would not believe me (laughs) and I have to prove it Mm -hmm. to them. (laughs) Um, I returned December of 2017. It was the anniversary of the assassination. And there was an event that took place and I, I was here for a few weeks only, and I thought, you know, it's, it's always in the back of my mind that it would, it would be great to just do it one more time, mm. and there was an internship being set up at the Grand Sarai, the Prime Minister's uh, palace, and I, I thought maybe this could be just a way to donate money to the internship. So I launched one tour, it was a free tour, donations only. I mean it took about 10 minutes for me to receive up to 50 requests i mean it was just instantaneous Mm. so you can't just do one tour so i did another tour schedule maybe 30 minutes later full fine one more Mm. the that evening they were all booked Mm. okay i looked at my flight details looked at the penalty (laughs) looked at what am i doing i i think the next morning I had already decided to stick around again mm. and try it, try it one more time, which ended up being dozens of times. Mm. But I had to properly address what happened to my father without it taking away from the larger story. Mm. and This took some time. I had to figure out how am I going to approach this because that is the only personal moment without it derailing from what should be an enjoyable walk around Beirut. So I think I, I think I found out, I think I learned quickly how to do it, and it was a eulogy I wrote while I was away, and maybe thought this would be the best thing to do. Not everyone knows what happened. Um, maybe people will discover towards the end of that stop in Martyr's Square, where my father is buried, Oh this is this is him and this is what he's talking about his own life. Um, but I, I memorized it. It's a 30 minute passage. I tried it a few times and it worked. Mm. And I don't want to say it's autopilot now. I have to rehearse it every time. I have to make sure I have to cry once before so I don't cry during the tour. Mm. That's every Sunday. Mm. Maybe I tear up still just a bit, but I don't break down. I I I don't want to make it too personal. Um, But yeah, I want to address what happened, and I think this is a way of keeping his memory alive for anyone that knew what happened or those that are coming to Beirut and are discovering recent history, that this is a a useful way of keeping his uh, legacy
0: going. Does it help you process those events every time you do it and when you do it do you feel like it's a little bit easier a little bit better do you feel like you've you you've left a little bit behind and you can move forward or is it just a recurring feeling of remorse and sadness every time it happens
2: it's two things it's it's glory and in, in the sense that I feel euphoric when I'm when I'm remembering him and it's also extremely painful and it's somewhere it's it's a balance of the of the two Mm. it it hurts immensely it also brings a lot of joy i don't know if that's considered uh processing but it's it's two very different emotions combined
0: to what degree is your father's legacy in your mind tied up with the story of lebanon uh, and and the plight of Lebanon.
2: Well, his personal story is, I think, very indicative ind- indicative of what many Lebanese went through during the civil war. He left reluctantly. He pursued a career away from Lebanon. Uh, he came back once the civil war ended. Was hopeful. Was optimistic. Eventually, that optimism withered, and there was a lot of navigating regional chaos and domestic problems and it eventually led to his own demise. Um, Many Lebanese that returned after the Civil War left again. Uh, A lot of the hope has been diminished. So I think his generation was the last one that saw the good years go to hell, saw the chance of recovery slip away, and now we're the generation afterwards. We're looking at the lost hope as the standard.
0: Hmm. Rather than the roller coaster, it's almost like a steady decline. Lebanese, being pragmatist, um, what is your best hope for this country in the next three to five years? The best
2: hope the next three to five years is that we are in limbo, mm-hmm. <laughs> that we're not we're not deteriorating further. I mean, I think that is the best hope. Okay. That regional, in particular, the civil, the Syrian war. Um, the fact that it has not ended with a peace process or a healthy transition to something better, the fact that it's reverting to the way things were before the revolt broke out, means Lebanon and Syria, the region, is in for further trouble down the road. This is not a, uh, this is not an end. This is not a, an ending that will usher in stability or or prosperity. None of that will happen in the next few years. We're looking at, I think, decades from now to see anything fruitful emerging. Uh,
0: uh, Assuming and with hope that there is resolution at some point in time, and fair enough, three to five is very abbreviated, 10, 15, 20, who knows. But but speaking to the character of the Lebanese, their entrepreneurship, their survival mentality, their ability to just find ways around problems, I mean... I, again, I see it from the outside, but I hear stories from the inside about uh, how, um, how, how uh, clever the people are here in terms of figuring things out against all odds. What, what would be the prospect for this part of the world, this country, within its, its neighboring Arab-Persian states, in terms of setting itself up in the future? What would you expect? Could it be the Switzerland or the Amsterdam of the Middle East? Does it have that that kind of internal capability, that makeup that could make it that day? Or is it just this hodgepodge of, of crazies who are just trying to get by day in, day out?
2: When you said Amsterdam, the Middle East, are you referring to the new hashish law?
0: That's <laughs> not, not necessarily. Okay, but but yeah. it, is, it is funny because some people say the Switzerland, but actually oftentimes I think because of the tolerance, the liberalism, the type of willingness, the trading port. I mean, there's more about Amsterdam that I'm reminded of when I come, when I come here to Beirut than Switzerland, which seems a little mm. uptight. Mm because of the trade and because
2: of what we're famous and that and yeah, yeah. Look, sort of looking always looking away from lebanon for commerce and yes exactly yeah i think that is going to happen whether lebanon exists or doesn't mm. whether the country is at war or at peace there will always be the entrepreneurial spirit mm. that's consistent throughout history mm. and if you go back thousands of years i mean the phoenicians were the quintessential commercial traders i mean they they knew how to they knew how to do business mm. And I think we have inherited that from many, 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 many generations of knowing how to deal with regional players. Uh, Eastern Mediterranean inhabitants have been living under many empires and many rulers and always had to find a way to to survive. And commerce is part of that story, surviving commercially and other ways too. Uh, I think that will always be the case. You'll always see Lebanese here Economically adjusting You will see Lebanese away from here Excelling I think the sad story is that the ones Away from here didn't have to leave mm. I mean it wasn't that It's because the country Is so So unattractive to someone Who really wants to pursue Their career all the way and excel You'd have the hiccups here Are, are so severe mm. So I'm. That's, that's a sad
0: part Of the Lebanon story that There's many Lebanese excelling away from Lebanon. But in some ways it reminds me of the Chinese diaspora, there are more Lebanese living outside of Lebanon than in Lebanon. I yeah. mean, I think you mentioned Brazil has a population of was 8 million Could Lebanese.
2: Be. I mean, yeah, Lebanese uh, Brazilians or of Lebanese extract. Yeah, it's almost yeah. double the population of and
0: Lebanon. It, and in some ways, just by virtue of that, that creates feeders into yes. other markets, creating other opportunities, creating networks. And in this world of global integrated commerce, that's a good thing, is it not? It's a good thing,
2: absolutely. Had things been, had things been stable had there been no war, then this would just be a nice, uh, a nice part of the story mm-hmm. that we have Lebanese here excelling and abroad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but today, you line up at the embassy to get a visa, either to leave and never come back, or to get a job in the Gulf, or to maybe secure a student visa and study away from Lebanon. Maybe if you're lucky, get a sponsorship and get a job. And I mean, that's, that's the situation now. Mm-hmm. Um the there's limited opportunity in Lebanon today, mm. but sure, outside of the country, I think that's our best uh, our, our best reputation that we're good at
0: business. there's uh China has aspirations to this part of the world um their belt and road initiative uh building infrastructure linking asia to the rest of the world whether through the kazakhstans the Stans, and all the way down into reinventing if you will the old silk road because of lebanon's uh historical ties to the european colonial powers that be Is there a time and an opportunity, uh, you know, I I think in in the midst of all of these other regional issues for perhaps Lebanon and other countries in the region to look east?
2: Well, there is a lot of individual uh, inroads into whether it's China or elsewhere. There are a lot of Lebanese that look all over the world for business opportunities. But uh, China's impact in the Middle East is still fairly small fairly small that will probably increase here as it's increasing all over the world but for the time being i think it's either regional or it's maybe looking west to europe um and i I don't think china has yet the hot uh it does it doesn't pull most lebanese thinking that's the that's the next uh that's the next phase i don't i don't think so but you know what? I mean, I say this in 2019. Who knows? In a decade from now, this could be different. And, mm. uh, but the point is Lebanese are all over the place. Mm. They're in America. They're in China. They're in Europe. They're in Brazil. They're in Australia. Uh, and they succeed. Mm. They go to places like South Sudan. They go to Gabon. They go to, you know, Malaysia. Mm. All over sometimes they make the news in unfortunate ways carlos now Mm. in japan Mm. but sometimes they make different types of news some a lot of it is positive Mm. i mean we have astrophysicists we have entertainers we have Shakira, we have <laughs> all types. So we're, we're good, I think, in that sense. <laughs> we're all over the place. Well,
0: there <laughs> it is. I mean, there it speaks to the eclectic nature of the Lebanese right yes, there. Right. So yeah. so I think in some ways uh, that, that, that says it all. Ronnie, thank you so much for spending time with us. Love Absolutely. your stories. Uh, the way that you present Lebanon to, to us outsiders uh, is a gift. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Thank you. That was my conversation with Rani Shatta, son of Lebanon's former Minister of Finance, Muhammad Shatta, assassinated in a car bomb on December 27, 2013, a defining moment in Lebanon's complex and tragic recent history. While my conversation with Rani reveals a lingering sense of doubt and hopelessness, there is the possibility that with a continued shift in power from west to east, that Lebanon and its neighbors will reassess their place in the world vis-a-vis Asia. It's not an entirely foreign concept, During the 15th century, French intellectuals coined the term Levant, which means rising, to describe the growing importance of the Eastern Mediterranean as jumping off point for wealth and adventure along the Silk Road. As China seeks to redraw the lines of trade and commerce through ambitious programs like its Belt and Road Initiative, some see the prospect of greater integration between the Middle East and Asia as a distinct possibility. Asian manufacturing and transport are energy dependent, and the oil-rich nations of the Arab world are happy to oblige with ample supplies of oil and natural gas. Middle East countries are also proving valuable trade and finance partners. Capital investment is on the rise as well. For many in this part of the world, Europe is a reminder of the colonial past, when less than a century ago, arbitrary lines were drawn, severing Arab and Persian cultures and communities. Today, there's talk of resting back what once existed, throwing out the Middle East nomenclature to turn its attention once again to Asia. It might feel like semantics to some, but for many here, Asia, not Europe, feels like the promised land. While the shift from west to east may not be overly apparent now, the diaspora of Lebanese scattered across the world are like feelers in a world economy subject to change and inflection. As Ronnie points out, the country has been a source of a wide range of world-class talent, from pop stars to CEOs. Like the Chinese, the Lebanese have fanned out across the world driven by both opportunity and necessity. Today, more Lebanese live outside than inside the country and, like their ancestors, can be found at the crossroads of commerce and innovation everywhere. I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Inside Asia, brought to you from the fringe of West Asia. I'm on my way back to Singapore, where we have an exciting lineup of guests. I'll be bringing these conversations to you in the weeks to come. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside
1: Asia. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, Created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn Marketing Masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed, Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com.